Hey there, everyone, and welcome to the Craftish Podcast. I'm Vicki Howell. This episode is sponsored by Makers Mercantile. Makers Mercantile is a space for fueling your creativity, inspiring you to make with any medium you feel passionate about. Their online shop carries supplies for sewing, weaving, knitting, crochet, dyeing, plus curated gifts, books, craft storage, apparel, I think you get the idea, pretty much anything that'll put a crafty smile on your face. And right now they're offering 15% off to the Craftish listeners of all of their yarn to encourage you to cast on or chain on as the case may be. And they have gorgeous stuff, trust me. They have Haiku, Kensington, and Zowerball, just to name a few. So go to makersmercantile.com and use code VickiMakes at checkout. That offer is good through August 17th. So this week I reconnected with an amazing woman whom I met at a Vogue Knitting Live conference where she was the keynote speaker. Saida Garrett is most publicly well known as the co-writer of the song Man in the Mirror, sung by the iconic Michael Jackson, of course, the Grammy award-winning and Oscar-nominated writer of Love You, I Do from the movie Dreamgirls, and as the backup singer for, frankly, too many vocal greats to even list here. What the masses may not know about her, though, is that she's also an amazing knitting and crochet designer. During our conversation, we talked about how she got started as a singer, which legendary producer pushed her to songwrite, her childhood introduction to knitting crochet, and about her utter enjoyment over making statement pieces for celebrities like Madonna. Here's Saida. Saida Garrett, thank you so much for being on Craftish. I'm thrilled to have you here. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. I was doing a, I was looking looking at the interwebs and in prep for our conversation and I came across something that made me smile. You um, were are the voice of Southern California ty- Toyota. Yeah. And I grew up in Torrance, <laughs> you know, and that's just, Torrance is where up until recently the Toyota, you know, the whole corporate Toyota headquarters was located. Yes. So I'm pretty sure that your voice has been in my life for a good portion of it. Um, I just didn't know. 15 years, Vicki, 15 years. I love oh. that. Yeah. 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 They've recently changed, uh, but um, like the last couple of months that uh, ago they changed the voices but I didn't know that when I got that gig I was singing we make it easy oh so easy I was <laughs> yeah. in that that group that's and like then, the jingle of my childhood <laughs> that's your heart <laughs> the, the, the voiceover talent didn't show up so they said say to read this so I read it and then 50, for 15 years I was reading you know now it's your Toyota dealer you can get a 2016 Toyota you know, whatever. It was really oh my great gig. I loved it. Actually, I guess it would have been more of my like young adulthood. Your adulthood. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like I like to pretend <laughs> I like to pretend it was a childhood. I was like, now that I think about it, <laughs> let's do I was, I was let's do some math. I mean, when I was born, I heard you do that <laughs> as I was entering the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's yeah, that's funny. So you grew up in Southern California. Um, not too far away from Torrance yourself, correct? I, well, I grew up all over L.A. because uh, my mother had an aversion to paying rent. <laughs> well, so who can blame her, really? Uh, so you lived all over L.A.? Yeah. We moved a lot. When you, so as a child, you, I want to cover, you have such a great story, both. Uh, you're sort of the epitome of creativity because you're a writer, uh, you're a singer, you're a performer, 
and you're an a crafter, a fantastic knitter and crocheter. Like I mean, I just <laughs> your skills blow me away. So let's start. Let's, let's go back. Um, okay. As, so during that childhood, as you're moving around, um, what was the sort of like origin of your creativity? Were you writing from the beginning? Were you, you know, crocheting from the beginning? How were you expressing yourself creatively you okay. know, in your youngest years? I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was um, singing and, you know, my mother was always like a guest in somebody's church and she would drag me along and, you know, prop me up on stage and I'd sing for the people. And um, also when I was in one of the elementary schools I was in, there was this girl named Jackie and I just loved her. She was so sweet and so graceful and delicate and very feminine. Even at a, uh, a young age, she was just a girly girl and I was so not, but I was attracted to her because she would sit and knit during uh, recess and lunch. And I didn't know how to do either. So I really wanted to learn, but I didn't have the tools. I didn't have needles and I didn't have yarn. So what I did was I went home and took apart two metal hangers and the long rod on the bottom where you fold your pants over. I, I bent the hangers until they broke. So I had two uh, hanger rods that mm -hmm. I would try and knit with. And I took apart an acrylic sweater and rolled it into a ball and started to knit. And my mother was so embarrassed that I was knitting with pieces of hanger uh, and, a, and a sweater that I'd taken apart that she actually bought me a pair of knitting needles and a ball of yarn. And that's kind of what started it. That's pretty ingenious. Were you, <laughs> have you, have you approached all aspects of your, of your life with that kind of ingenuity, with that kind I, of like you know, moxie? I don't, I don't know. I guess when you, when you don't have, you make do. And that was, I, I just thought that would be a great thing. I've lived my life saying poverty breeds ingenuity. And I fully believe that. Oh my God. You're so right. You're yeah. so right. I never thought about that. So you're singing and you're singing wherever your mother props you up at. You're yeah. you're knitting at that point. Yeah. Um, what else? I didn't you learn to crochet until uh, there was a there was a crossing guard who watched the children at, uh, at nutrition, um, and she would sit and crochet. But she had elephantitis, so she didn't walk around the the schoolyard. She would just sit on a bench, crochet, and she would blow her whistle when she saw somebody running or or hitting or whatever they were doing. She would blow the whistle, point, and tell them to stop doing whatever they were doing, and they would. And then she'd go back to her crocheting. Well, I would sit and watch her. So she just sort of took me under her wing and taught me to crochet. I really wish I remembered that woman's name, but I don't. But I, I thank her every day because she opened up a whole new world for me. Yeah. And crocheting was so fast. And for me, it was a lot easier than knitting. And I could just work things out in my head without a pattern with crocheting that I couldn't do at that young age when I was knitting. Because it was, it's so much more sculptural. Which knitting or crochet? No, crochet, crochet. Yes, absolutely. You can. Yeah, you don't. You don't really need a pattern to make. The, if you know the stitches, you can make any kind of shape you want, and not necessarily so with knitting. Knitting is kind of more math. So, 
at, at what point do I want to I want to switch over to the other aspect of creativity and then weave them back in? Um, at what point do you decide? Pun intended. I, I try at every point in life to <laughs> to bring in puns, <laughs> and I try to just skate right over them. <laughs> hey. You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Vicky. Thank you so much. I so, love it. So, did you grow up? No, I, I read in an article, gosh, I think from maybe like 1987, that you said, I think it was People Magazine, that you said that when you were 13, you had a plan and you knew that you would make it. And so you changed your name and you were on your way. Oh. At, Paint a little bit of a picture for us about that time in your life um, creatively. Like, was that at the point where you knew that you were going to be a singer-songwriter? No. Um, I didn't even think anything about the singing aspect. I was really young, and we would, you know, it would be for my mother, you know, when I would sing in church, people would say, oh, your daughter's so talented. You know, it was really for her. But in junior high school, I was always the new kid in school, never had any friends because I was new always. Um, uh, there was a guy who had the same predicament as I. He wasn't very popular, but he could play guitar. And he wanted to be in the school talent show. And he knew that if he just sat up there and played guitar, that they would boo him off the stage. So he said, would you sing this song while I play guitar? So we sang a Stevie Wonder song. And that next day, I went from nobody some new girl that nobody wanted to be bothered with to the girl that won the talent show. Mm. Oh my God. That was like the beginning of my, that was the beginning of me kind of accepting myself. Like I can do this, like I can do this and, and people like what I'm doing. So I, I, I felt good about it. And I think that's kind of what started my whole process of wanting to be a singer. And then at 15, my mother was hanging someone's wallpaper, a, a, an R&B artist named DJ Rogers. So she hung his wallpaper, and while she was hanging in his house, she said, you know my daughter can sing? He said, yeah, your daughter, my plumber's daughter, <laughs> the guy who's, you know, he was just saying yeah. whatever. But my mother was very persistent. So he said, all right, bring her over, and I'm telling you, if it's not happening, I don't want to ever, I don't want to hear about it anymore. So I went to his house. He sat me on the piano bench next to him. He played a riff on the piano and he said, sing this. I sang it. And he was like, whoa, okay. And then he said, sing this. And he played a more complicated riff and I sang it. And he literally pushed me off the bench. And the, <laughs> next, thing, the next thing I know, I'm in a recording session with these, you know, famous background singers. And already and he, at 15 at 15 wow. and the blend i i just loved the blend of melodies and harmonies and singing harmonies with with other people just hearing that ring that true ring of of harmony you were a part it of just, something bigger for that moment. oh my god it yeah. was so much fun yeah. i had the most fun i ever had in my life and then three weeks later i got a check what and i was like oh heck yeah <laughs> this is for me this is what I want to do. And that's what started it. <laughs> How can you have that much fun and then still get paid for it? I couldn't believe it. It was awesome. I feel like just from the work that I've seen of yours that you've kind of kept that that essence of, of truly um, living your spirit and and loving your work and, and incorporating it into your life. That's the, that At least from the outward perspective, it really looks like you have held on to that still these years later. 
Becky, seeing is believing. You 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 were right on the money. I I just I just have to, I cannot be creative. I can I have to be doing something. I I never sit idle and watch TV. I never when I'm in the dentist's office waiting to get my teeth cleaned, I'm knitting or I'm crocheting or I'm I'm always doing something. I also paint and sculpt as well, but I don't have as much fun doing that as I do working with the yarn. You mentioned that you sang a uh, a Stevie Wonder song for that talent show. Did you ever get a chance to, or have you so far gotten a chance to work with him in person? I've not worked with him, but I do uh, know him. And it's so weird. There's a thing in L.A. called, um, where did we see Stevie last time? A, a music thing. Nam. Nam. The, where all the... Um, uh, musicians and people that make instruments and people that make speakers and microphones and guitars oh, and right, drums. Right. Yeah. So I was there and, and of course Stevie was there and I went over to him to say hello and, and he, he spoke to me. We, we know each other. He spoke to me. I held his hand and when he held my hand he felt my wedding ring and Stevie said, you got married? <gasps> I didn't say a word, of, and then I realized, oh my God, he felt my ring. It was it was a very Ray Charles moment. Right, right. <laughs> but he knew enough about you then. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say we're good friends, but I, you know, I know him and love him, and he knows who I am too. Did you ever so. Did you ever share that story with him about that talent show moment and how transformative it was for you? No, I didn't. I, I didn't get a chance I'm the to man do that. that. You do that. You know what? I'm <laughs> next time I see him, I will tell him that. Yes. <laughs> And I'll tell him you said so. Oh, you make sure to do that. I'm sure he. Yes. I sure. I'm totally on his radar. Yes. Um, so you've done. You've you've worked with some some legends, which of course we'll talk about in a bit. But but the one that was really surprising to me, and again, this goes back to our like South Bay upbringing, mm-hmm. was you have a credit on a Rancid album. And for those who don't know, Rancid is like a punk group, like a SoCal punk group. I used to walk across the borders of Tijuana to go see them play in like dirty clubs when I was 19. No, oh, no. Yeah. yeah. So oh for me God. to see like amidst the Donna Summers and, you know, Quincy Jones, <laughs> Rancid, I was floored. You have to tell me that story. Vicky, I don't even remember that story. It was, oh. it was just a background session. I don't You're remember the song. Me. I'm sorry. I'm going to look it up, and I'll get back to you on that. I I, I don't really remember that. I want a breaking news like update later. Um, you got it. Tell you, I'll tell, tell you the song and everything. Tell Eric right now, your your husband slash manager, get on that right now. <laughs> Story. Eric, Vicky says <laughs> you need to get on my credit with Rancid. I need to know more about that because she wants to hear the full story. He will do that for you, Vicky. Thank you. Tell him. Thank You're you. welcome. So, well, let's talk about some of the, the more memorable um, experiences then. We talked about, so, 15... I Bob Skaggs. <laughs> okay, that's something. <laughs> I was going to go straight to straight to MJ, but let's start with... Let's start no, with no, there let's if you want. skip Bob. Well, Bob, actually, Bob I feel Skaggs. like there's a big... So, at some point, so at 15, you get this, you get this gig that you get paid for, and you're like, yes, I am in it to win it now. Um, and then at some point, you go for an audition with Quincy Jones. Yes. Um, I'm assuming within the few years of that last experience, were you, were you at that point just sort of taking singing gigs wherever you could get them? 
Oh, yeah. And uh, I was taking gigs that my sister could not understand why I would want to quit a good paying job to go and sing with a 16 piece Latin disco band. She, you know, she just didn't understand any yeah. of that. But I, I, I completely forgot the question I was answering. Well, the question that you're answering is, you know, were you just kind of taking whatever gig you could yes. in between then and then your audition with Quincy Jones? Yes, and Quincy's audition was a cattle call. He was looking for singers and musicians who were already in groups, uh, singing groups, and he just wanted to see what was out there because he wanted uh, what we now know is uh, Take like a, Six or like a super group. Yeah, he or, to form or a super group. Yeah. Yeah, or the uh, Fifth Dimension or or Manhattan Transfer. That's what he was looking for, and. When I got to the audition, I had a friend who told me about it because his girlfriend, my best friend, was going, but she didn't bother to tell me. So he told me about it, and I asked him, well, well, where is it? He gave me the place. I said, what time is it? He said, I don't know. So I was at the audition spot at 7 a.m. with two other people who were in line as well. There's that moxie well, again, the same, you know, that same gal that used a hanger for knitting needles. Yes, <laughs> Time is not going to oppress you. You're going to be there. I'll be there. So <laughs> at, the, at the time of the actual audition, what was noon, by that time, there was a line around the block on Santa Monica mm. Boulevard at SIR recording studios, uh, rehearsal studios. And since I was the, they, they let us all in and there were tables where you could put your name and, and the time you wanted to audition. There were 15-minute intervals for the next two weeks. Oh. I said to myself, I'm here today. I'm ready to audition today. I'm doing this today. So I was like the third or fourth person they saw, because uh, I was third in line. And they said to me much later that they kind of set the bar by my audition. So everyone that... Everyone that they saw after me had to be as good as me or better. So wow. anyway, long story short, after nine months of getting these letters, congratulations, you're one of 800 from the Quincy oh, Jones. Oh, so you were, you were hearing from, because I read in that same like 1987 People magazine article that I mentioned before that you'd waited 11 months and it didn't say, you did actually hear something. It wasn't just yeah, like all this yeah. time of silence. Okay. We would get these letters, you know. 500, 250, 100, 50, 25, and 10. They, were, they weren't bringing you back to re-audition. No, I, I auditioned two or three times. Okay. The third time was okay. for Quincy Jones. Okay. And then these letters started coming, you know, you know, over months and months. I wish, I really wish that I'd saved them, but I, I didn't. So, uh, you know, nine months later, it's me and three guys. And we formed wow. this group called Deco. And our first and only uh, recording was the soundtrack to Sidney Poitier's directorial debut, a movie called Fast Forward. It was out for like 20 minutes, you know. Uh, but in that movie, I had a song with a very famous producer named Jellybean Benitez, who discovered Madonna. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So Jellybean wrote this song, and it was in the movie. But in the movie, it played in the guitar solo. So I'm not even singing in the movie, but the song went on to become a number one dance record. And so from that, I, you know, the other guys sort of cashed their checks and I continued to write because I didn't want to be 
in a legal battle with Quincy Jones about not fulfilling my contractual obligations. So the guys that were real musicians, they sang and played and, you know, wrote their own music. I wrote poems. Okay. So when Quincy said, do you want to be in this group? I, I was like, I just want the, you know, the artist part. I don't want to be a songwriter. So when they went for a meeting with Quincy with all their contracts, he said, where's Saida's contract? And they said, well, she doesn't want the, the to be a songwriter. She just wants to be an artist. And Quincy literally pushed their contracts back across his desk and said, you either all sign or nobody signs. Wow. So next thing I know, Saida. <laughs> and it was like, you better open this door and sign this damn contract or we will hurt you. Right. So when three large black men are knocking on your door telling you to do something, you kind of do it. <laughs> but, so, you had been, but you had been writing. You'd been writing poetry. So it wasn't. It w- yeah, but writing poems is a completely different animal than setting those poems to music. It's a completely different thing because there's rhythm and there's right. internal rhymes and there's, there's, uh, uh, there's a formula. Whereas there, there's a different formula for writing poetry. It doesn't have to rhyme. It doesn't have to be in a certain format. You don't have to have a chorus. You know, it's a completely different thing. So I didn't want to take on that challenge because I didn't want to let Quincy down and then be sued. Yeah. That was my whole. That was my whole uh, uh, reason for yeah. for signing that. I mean, that's. A, I mean, it's a big. That's a. That's a mammoth expectation. You yeah, know, because. Quincy because, Jones and his legal team. Exactly. Um, if I wasn't a songwriter, so I knew that I couldn't write 100% of a song. It would be half. So let's say the contract said you have to write 12 songs in a year. Okay, for them, it's easy. They're songwriters. They, they wrote their own stuff. They play their own music. They can turn in 100% of a song and have to have 12 songs. For me, if there's two people in the room, then I have to have 24 songs. Don't let three people be in the room. I, I just said, I, it was just too much. Mm. So I said, no. So when he said, you all get it or nobody gets it, then I, in earnest, started to study the craft of songwriting. And I think I got pretty good at it. I would say that, you, that you've done decently in your life with your Too Academy awesome. Award yes, noms darling. and, yes, and your darling. Grammy, your fancy <laughs> Grammy. <laughs> Don't hate no, hey, no, that was love. No, that was love. I have like huge. I am, I'm just blown away by by the by the things that you've done. So you, so that relationship with Quincy blossomed, and he's the reason that you ended up uh, working with Michael Jackson, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. I was signed to Quincy's uh, publishing company, and they were down to the wire. Uh, they'd been in the uh, studio recording the Bad Album, for two years. And so Quincy had a little meeting with his songwriters on the West Coast. I think there was like eight of us or six of us at the time. And they were having this meeting, and I walked in late. And Quincy was mid-sentence, and he sort of tracked my movements across the room, trying to sneak in the room and just sort of sit down quietly. And so he tracked me with his eyes, and he said, as I was saying before I was so rudely interrupted and I'm just trying to like disappear in the middle of the room, you know? So I took some notes and uh, went back to one of my co-songwriters, Glenn Ballard, and told him what Quincy wanted um, as far as tempo and the, uh, uh, you know, he wanted a pop song, not a ballad. So I gave him some of those notes and we wrote this song 
And we knew at the end that it was a pretty darn good song. And we hugged and we congratulated each other. And that was on a Friday night. Okay. Tell the so, people the name of the song, for the love of the Pete. The song <laughs> is Man in the Mirror. And let me just say, two years before I sat down with Glenn, I was in a, a, a writing session with a, an amazing jazz pianist named John Beasley. And so we're writing this song, and the phone rings. And instead of John letting the answering machine pick up the phone, he, he answers the phone and begins this very banal conversation just oh i'm not doing nothing i'm just hanging out and i'm i'm seething going no he didn't say he's not doing anything i can't believe he's on the phone right now we're trying to i'm just seething internally right, right. and i'm flipping through the pages of my lyric book while he's doing this and i hear him say the man what man oh the man in the mirror so i wrote down the phrase man in the mirror two years later vicky I'm sitting with Glenn Ballard, and I'm flipping through my book. Glenn says, what does Quincy want? I don't know. He said, okay, let's see what we come up with. He stands up, he goes over to his keyboard, turns on the keyboard, and just to get some sounds, he was playing with the sounds on the keyboard, he starts playing. And I'm flipping through the lyric book, and the phrase that I wrote down two years earlier, Man in the Mirror, Every time I tell this story, I get goosebumps. The phrase popped out, and I just started writing. I couldn't write fast enough. I was sort of motioning to Glenn, wait, wait, hold up, hold up. I'm, and I'm trying to write this, and it just all poured out. The first verse just poured out of me. And he said, okay, okay, you finish the, the lyric to this. I'll finish the track. This was Wednesday afternoon. She, he said, Friday, we'll demo the song. So we demoed the song on Friday, finished it Friday night, and I knew that the Quest publishing offices were closed. So I called Quincy and I said, you know, Glenn and I wrote this great song. Let me bring it over. He said, no, uh, why don't you just turn it in on Monday and I'll hear it on, you know, Monday or Tuesday. And I said to Quincy, Quincy, please, no, let me just, he said, Sid, just, just turn it in and I'll hear it uh, on Monday. I got, I, I said, I just wanted to come by and drop it off. He says, I'm sitting here with a room full of people. Uh, uh, I don't know. I guess they were discussing insurance or whatever. He said, anyway, he said, I got 12 people in my dining room and I, I can't. Do, I said, Quincy, please. He said, okay. He's got six daughters. So he knew he wasn't going to win this. <laughs> yeah. So he said, okay, come on, bring it up, bring it over. And he hung up the phone. So I knocked on the door. The housekeeper opened the door and sort of waved me into the main room and the dining room door is open. Quincy opens the dining room door and there are 12 suits sitting at his dining room table looking up at me like, what the hell? Like, who is this and why is she interrupting this meeting? I mean, all that energy was coming at me. So I handed Quincy this cassette and I said, Q, the only thing I ask is that you just let me know as soon as you can what's happening. I just want to know one way or the other. Just easily. all right, all right. And so he closed the door and I went home. Two hours later, I'm making dinner at the house and... Quincy calls and he said, Sid, this is the best song that I've heard in 10 years. And I'm like, yes! Wow. And he says, but, and I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear what comes after, but I don't want to hear nothing. I just want to rest in best song I've heard in 10 years. Just <laughs> period. That for period. Yes. Done. Yeah. So, so he said, but you know, we've been in the studio for two years and Michael has yet to record a song he hasn't written. And he said, don't worry, 
if Michael doesn't sing this song on his record, I'll record it with James Ingram on my record. And I love James Ingram, but honey, James Ingram, Michael Jackson. James Ingram, Michael Jackson. You know, so I had to You're let like, it go. That's nice. <laughs> three but... days later, three days later, Quincy calls me and says, We are in the studio recording your old piece of song. Oh wow. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> and then he says, but Michael has um a problem with the chorus. And I'm thinking, oh God, I just wanted to live in, we're in the studio. I was grooving on that moment. And then he said, but, I hate that word, but. So he said, Michael says the chorus is too short and he's well, four more lines for, and he, he needs you to do, and, and he said, hold, hold on a minute, Sid. And I hear, and Quincy said, and Michael said, you really got to bring home the message to the, hold, hold, hold on, Sid. And then I hear, and so Quincy said, hold on a minute. And he puts Michael Jackson on the phone. Now, I don't know about you, Vicky, but when I was coming up, all the Jacksons, they each had wives that were my sister, my cousins. We all had Jacksons for husbands. My husband was Michael. Okay. So in my mind, I'm on the phone with my husband, right? Yeah. So I don't want to go crazy and scream like, oh, my God, I love you so much. Oh my God. I wanted to be the antithesis of that. So you want it to be like a, we've already been married 10 years, wife. Yeah, please. Like Not AT&T. <laughs> I was strictly AT&T. And I got on the phone and I said, how can I help you? He said, first, I just want to say I love this song. So he I was said, gracious. Thanks. He was gracious. Oh my God, he was Great. amazing. He was amazing. And then the second thing he said to me was, I love your voice. And I'm inside, I'm going, oh my God. But outside, <laughs> it was like, that's really nice. Thank you. So then we started talking about what I could do to fix this song to make it right for him. And in my little mind, I don't even know where I got the audacity to even think this, but I said to myself, I don't want Michael to be a writer on this song. So I came up with six different stanzas for him to choose from. I didn't want to work him too much. I don't want him to, you know, go out of his way. So he, the stanza that he ended up choosing was, you got to get it right while you got the time because when you close your heart, then you close your mind. Right? Those are solid so, lines. Solid lines. Thank you. Thank you very much. And so we went into the studio a few days after that and recorded the choir. And, oh, but before that, the, the demo that I sang for Michael was in a key that was one step too high for him. So Quincy asked How me to come. How is that possible? <laughs> well, there's a comfortable range for, for singers. Right. Not that he can't no, go no, beyond No, no, I mean it. for him in particular. Yeah. He has such yeah, a high right. range. Yeah. You're right. So... They invited me to come back to the studio and sing the song in the proper key. And that's when I first met Michael. And I'm just me. I, I mean, I'm, 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 I don't do the starstruck thing because I don't, it doesn't really matter that much to me because I know stars that can be really mean and not nice people. So I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't starstruck at all. So I met Michael and uh, he, he started, uh, when I went into the studio to, to record it in the new key, he started following me with a video camera. And I turned around and said, what are you, what are you doing? He said, 
I want to record you singing the song. I said, why? He said, Vicky, and I kid you not. He said, because I want to sing it like you sing it. I said, great, Mike. All my friends are going to really believe me when I tell them he wanted to sing it like me. Great. You know? <laughs> so, and in this, um, there was a documentary, documentary that Spike Lee did on Michael. And in the documentary, it shows him following me into the studio. And when I'm singing the song, you can see Michael in the mirror of the studio recording me singing Man in the Mirror for him to record in the right key. Mm, that is good. <laughs> that is good. <laughs> <laughs> really crazy. Uh, oh, I loved him so, so much. He was so much fun, girl. And when we traveled, you know, we traveled all over the world um, on, the, on the Dangerous Tour. And Vicky, I kid you not, it was like, Traveling with the Messiah. Oh, I bet. It was like touring with the baby Jesus because everywhere we went, it was like, Michael! And Do you it, absorb any of that? Can you feel that energy coming at you? Is it hard to process or, or, or do you feel sort of like disassociated with it? More the latter because it's not for me. And I, yeah. I didn't, it didn't really hit home until we were in Spain. And there were some countries that didn't have an A hotel, and a, there were A, B, and C. A was Michael and his guests. B was the band and the singers. C was the crew. And the hotel corresponded with your A, B, or C. So sometimes where there was no B hotel, and he wasn't going to put us with the crew, so we were in the same hotel as Michael. Those were the nights we didn't sleep. Because yeah. all night, Michael, we are the world. We love you. <laughs> I just can't stop love. You know, it was, it was all over. So, and we were in Spain one time, and a friend of mine uh, from the tour, we were like, let's go have lunch. So we said, okay. So we meet downstairs, we exchange money, and outside the hotel, there was a long red velvet rope. And on either side of the rope, there were fans like five and six deep on either side. So when, I, when we walked out of the hotel, we're walking past these people, and I hear somebody say, oh, my God, that's Saida Garrett. And I turn around, and they start rushing towards us, and we start running, okay? Yeah. They start running after us, and I'm running going, oh, my God, what are they going to do when they catch us? So we're running and running and running, and then I guess somebody said, hey, what if Michael comes out of the hotel while we're chasing Saida Garrett? So they kind of fell off and went back to the hotel. But that was the most horrific fan experience I've ever had. And then that moment, I realized what Michael has dealt with his whole entire life. Yeah, that seems I've, awful to me. It seems it was, it like was a terrible way to live. Such a so responsibility. Scary. Um, so scary. And so isolating in many ways. So at some point, or you know, you go from this room to I'm guessing packed stadiums. Heck yeah! Oh my God, yes. And Talk, what's the difference between you know sitting in a room, you know, singing 
with Michael Jackson and sitting in a stadium that holds, you know, 10, 20, 30,000 people singing Vicky. with either him or you've been a backup singer for many amazing people. Um, Vicky, Vicky, there, Michael didn't do auditoriums. He performed in stadiums. Yeah. So it was 80, 90,000 wow. people. And when we were in places like Sweden, there would be a whole football field full of blondes. <laughs> and then the one dark-haired or, or uh, brown-haired person stuck out like a fly in milk. It was crazy. And in, in Sweden in the summertime, we would go on at eight or nine, but it would still be like the sun was, it was like noon, right. but it was nine, eight or nine o'clock at night. It was crazy. But that was the most exciting tour I've ever been on. I've also toured with Madonna on the reinvention tour. Well, so do you, with that, I'm, I imagine there's got to be a lot of adrenaline that comes at you. Completely. Um, are you able to then recycle that into something new creatively or are they, are they disjointed? Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, is that is that a fuel of any form? Like feeling? That oh my God! Love? Yes, yes. It's so energizing and encouraging. And when you're getting that kind of love from that many people at the same time, I there's I cannot explain what that is like. There is no drug. There is no other high that is equivalent to that. There's there's nothing like it. And that's why entertainers keep wanting to do it it's oh my god i don't even know how to explain it it's like a, a b12 injection on steroids or something yeah. i don't i don't really know how to describe it but there's nothing like it nothing so you traveled a lot uh with him you um you worked with madonna where you were so i'm guessing that at some point you're on tour buses um, oh oh no Oh, no, 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 only flights, no. first class Michael, all the time? Michael flew us everywhere. We had our own plane. He had his own plane. What but about the with band, Madonna? Uh, we didn't do the bus thing. You didn't. Okay, well, so no, we where, where I'm trying to get at, where I'm trying to get at, and I didn't, it wasn't as smooth as I had wanted it to be, oh, okay. <laughs> was that you have a lot of downtime, um, which I'm assuming is where you bring back your knitting and crochet. Oh, my God, yes. I'm, I've knitted on planes, on trains, on buses. on I, I've knitted all over the world in every uh, circumstance, in every Every situation you could find yourself in, I, it, where I was sitting idle, waiting on a plane, or waiting on a bus, or waiting in line, or waiting, I would just be knitting or crocheting, a and it was it was a, it was a release. Where other people were maybe reading a book or playing a, well, it wasn't video games at that time, but they were uh, doing everything but just sitting around, and I. I that is the worst waste of my time. I hate wasting time. So I, I'm always doing something. So I guess that, that those are where I try to find something creative to do. I need an outlet for and that. Does, and does, you know, coming up with your own, you know, inspired knitted piece or crocheted piece, does that fill the same creative space as writing a song? Does it feel different? Is, is one it's more different. It's different. It's different. It's completely different. It's, it's like, do you like skating or do you like riding your bike? I like them both, but they're both different. Mm -hmm. So I enjoy every aspect of, of every bit of the creative process. I really, really do. 
So I tried and get it into my life at every opportunity. When um, so I had the opportunity uh, to meet you at Vogue Knitting Live in uh, Pasadena earlier this year, and you <laughs> you told so many great stories. But I would love if you would well, first of all, I was so floored by some of the knit and crochet pieces that that you brought out. I I honestly I don't uh, your like design talent so far. Uh, succeeds mine. Um, I just am so. What I, I, you're the one with the show. Well, you, one has nothing to do with the other. You know that. You know that. Um, you, just your pieces are so imaginative and um, layered and interesting. But you told so you told many great stories about not only some of the stuff you've already shared um, about your music life, but also about some of these um, knit and crochet pieces. Um, and I would love if you would share uh, with my audience your story about Madonna and the Bustier. Yes, uh, we were at, um, we were rehearsing, we rehearsed for three months before we went on the summer tour, the reinvention tour, and uh, we were at the great, what it was called the Great Western Forum at the time, uh, rehearsing for the show uh, during the day, and I, there was a lot of downtime, and when Madonna was performing a number, if you weren't in the number, you had to sit in the audience in case she wanted to go over the number you were in. So we're sitting in you know, this empty uh, Great Western Forum and sitting on the benches and I'm just knitting. And so I'm knitting this, this bustier of a girl who was the girlfriend of somebody on the tour and she came on the elevator with this piece that she was wearing that she bought somewhere for you know several hundred dollars. And I looked at this piece and I said, Hmm. I could make this. So I did. And it was a simple, simple thing. It was just a, um, a stockinette stitch, uh, a, a long rectangle that I then closed and put a zipper and then attached it to a bra. And then part of the bra would hang over the, the, the bustier. So it would look like you have on a bustier that's slightly falling down. Right. And she loved it. So I said, I'll make you one. And so uh, I said, "What's what color would you like it to be? And she said, oh, I think I would like a dusty rose. So I made it for her. Madonna said me, that? Yeah. I would so have never I, in a million years chosen dusty rose for Madonna. Dusty rose, yeah, she sure did. <laughs> Although this was so, the 90s, right? Uh, yeah, okay. I guess so. Yeah, that was no, a big color. no, no, that no, was it was 2000. Color. Oh, really? It was really? 2000, yeah. Because I haven't been, it hasn't been 16 years since I've toured. It was a reinvention tour whenever that was. I think it was 13, 2013 or 2012, something like that. Okay. Anyway, um, so she gave me her bra and I sewed in the uh, the bra onto the, the, the knitted fabric. And I never saw her wear it, um, but she did thank me for having made it for her. Do you wear a lot of the stuff that you make yourself? All the time. What is your, uh, do you have a, a favorite piece? You had a beautiful coat, and I hopefully I can get a picture of it. Um, oh, I, I to can put send on the you show. that. Okay, I'd I'll love to put it on husband. the, we'll put it on the show notes page um, for this episode. But you had a beautiful coat um, at v VK Live. Do you have, uh, do you have a favorite piece or one that you get the most compliments from? Hmm. You also had that purse that was this like, I think it was maybe vaguely Chanel-esque. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I, I got into making um, purses when I was walking down the street in, in Venice uh, on Abbott Kinney uh, in L.A. And I walked into this shop and this woman uh, had these bags that, that I saw clearly they were crocheted. And then she gave me the idea of crocheting with sequins, like, like that you would sew on fabric. I would crochet with them and that w would put such an intricate uh, detail uh, on every bag. And I just start, I went crazy. I just started, when I saw that she could do that, I, it gave me the idea that I could do it too. And I just started making these bags. And I gave one to my girlfriend who went to some event where Angela Bassett uh, tapped her on the shoulder and said, oh my God, that's a great bag. Where did you get it? She said, oh, my girlfriend made it. My girlfriend, Saida Garrett. So I made Angela Bassett a, a few bags. So she has a few of my bags. And Madonna has my, my vest. So I, I, don't, I don't look for, for the, the celebrities to, like, post it on Facebook and wear it at, at some event and, you know, say that I'm the one that made it. But I enjoy knowing that in s some very famous people's closets, hang and hold some of my most um, intricate and, and delightful pieces that I've made for them. Would you ever consider producing them for the public? I would love that, but I don't have the time. Right. And I, I don't know anyone that would, would do it, and there's no real pattern, because it's, it's just kind of like, I'll go to the sewing store and I'll pick like a, a reel of, of sequins and 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 some and in fact I was using very inexpensive yarn like heart yarn because I wanted the bag to be durable but um, I don't know I just go by feel I go what what I like to look at and what I think would look good together some I've, I've had some instances where it's like mm -mm, that's not working but uh, for the most part it's been pretty good I mean, but that's part of the design, that's part of the creative process for anything, right? I'm sure you've written lyrics that didn't work as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's all the same. It's all yeah. the same. Yeah. You worked, um, you were nominated for writing a song called Love You, I Do for Dreamgirls. Uh, yes. Jennifer what, Hudson. Jennifer Hudson. Did you, um, how did that particular um song come about is that another one that was just in a catalog for you no um, or did no they come way. to you specifically okay i had a friend uh, who was uh, at one point the music supervisor for um the movie version of the play dream dream girls mm -hmm. so um he said to me that the director was using all of the original uh musicians and, and songwriters for uh this this movie Unfortunately, the main lyricist, Tom Irons, passed away in the 80s. So they were, in effect, auditioning lyricists. So I had to turn in some of my lyrics uh, for them to consider uh, using me for this film. And the, the main point was the director wanted to see if the writer that they hired could write pictures, could write words that you could that created visual pictures in your mind because he wanted to convey a certain sentiment in a scene where the actress Jennifer Hudson had to tell uh, the love of her life Jamie Foxx that she was secretly in love with him but she couldn't say 
Oh, I love you so much. So the, the song was, in effect, another character in the scene. And it uh, relayed Jennifer's feelings about um, Jamie Foxx's character um, in a way that uh, mere words on a page for an actor to speak couldn't convey. So when I auditioned with the lyrics, they picked, they picked me and a couple of other people. And it was one of the three original songs that was made for the film from the play. Fantastic. Thank you. What an amazing experience. It was so fun. <sighs> you, my friend, oh, are a gem. The, the, the down part about something like that is I had to write, um, I guess, about 25 revisions or different songs or revisions uh, 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 thereof of songs for them to consider and after 25 or 26 tries I got one song in and then I got another song in but the song that ended up being the, the one I won the Grammy for I'd rewritten like 20 something times so if I decided that the first one or two tries that I wasn't you know they don't know what they want I'm done then I never would have have the opportunity to win a Grammy or be nominated for an Oscar because I would have been done, you know? So as a songwriter, it's your job to give the, the music supervisor and the director exactly what they need to convey in a certain scene or you won't get hired again. Right. It's not necessarily a statement about, you know, the validity of your talent. It's about doing the job that you've been hired to do, which is please exactly. them. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I well, mean, you, you certainly, you certainly have the. Um, it, it sounds like you were that your confidence was was there upon conception um, in all aspects of your life, and I so admire that, and I really appreciate you sharing your stories, your great stories, um, with Thank us today. You, I really enjoyed telling them, and I adore you. You know that. You made me cry when we first met. I, well. <laughs> it was a good thing. It was a good thing. <laughs> I, I just, I, I have a clear vision for, for a project for you, and I'm, I'm just thrilled that you're even considering it. So, heck yeah. Um, you well, say it, I'll do it. I'm just waiting on a call for you, busy lady. I told you. Okay, we'll, we'll get this I, I worked will, out. I will get Eric on it ASAP. Okay, darling. Well, thank you so much. Um, and uh, send some pictures for the show notes, and I will talk to you soon. You got it. Thank you, Vicky. Right, thank you. Bye, buddy. Bye, bye. Saida's lyrics and projects can be found through her website. For more info, links, photos of some of her knit and crochet creations, and to hear her original audition audio for Man in the Mirror, check out this episode's show notes page at vickihowell.com slash craftish. Thanks again to our sponsor, Makers Mercantile. All you knitters and crocheters out there, be sure to take advantage of their 15% off yarn offer. Use the code VickyMakes at checkout at makersmercantile.com. Craftish is a Camp Bell production. It's produced in Austin, Texas by me and mixed and edited by Dave Campbell. Music is provided by Explosions in the Sky. On the next episode of Craftish is artist, comic book, and children's book author Travis Nichols. That episode will go live next Thursday. Until then, take a little time to make something and share it with others. Breathe in, craft out. Bye, guys.